prapana parijataya totra vetraika panaye jnana mudraya krishnaya gitamrita duhe namaha Salutations to Krishna, the Parijata or Kalpataru, the wish-fulfilling tree, who is the bestower of all desires of those who take refuge in him, who is the holder of the cane in one hand, holder of the Jnana Mudra, the symbol of knowledge, in the other, and who is the milker of the Gita nectar. Vasudeva sutam devam kamsachanura mardanam Devaki paramanandam krishnam vande jagadgurum I salute you, Krishna, the world teacher, the son of Vasudeva, the destroyer of negativities, the supreme bliss of Devaki. Om Sahana, Om Sahana Vavatu, Sahana Bhunaktu, Sahaviryam Karavavahe, Tejasvi Navaditamastu, Ma Vidvishavahai, Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. May Brahman protect us, may Brahman sustain us. And may Brahman illumine our thinking process. May we not find fault with each other, with our teachers, or with we study. And may what we study be a source of inspiration to us eternally. Om peace, peace, peace. May peace be unto us. May peace be unto all. Om Hari Om. Today we approach the end of September, the 29th Sunday, and our class at 4 o'clock consists of chapter 5 of the Bhagavad Gita. Over the last weeks, we've made our way through the first four chapters. And last week ended by putting on the board those two slokas, which we now intend to memorize. One is the threefold formula for spiritual success, meaning prostrating before the teachers, questioning them, and serving them, and then getting the instruction, the highest knowledge, transmitted to you. Something that's happened from time out of mind to much, much more experienced and profound beings than such as we are here. That is, even Sri Ramakrishna, Paramahamsa, took several teachers. So even the avatar is seen to take that humble stature and attitude because, uh, not only as an example, because the maya is so strong and the pervasive wind of collective root ignorance and individual avidya, root ignorance, is pervasive here in the world, especially in this day and time, in what they call Kali Yuga. So we memorized, or we put that on the board to memorize it, Tadviddi Pranipatena Pariprasnina Sevaya, 
Upadekshanti te gyanam gyaninas tattvadarshinaha. The aspirants seek enlightenment by prostrating, by questioning, and by service of the great ones. Then the wise, who are the seers of truth, instruct them in the essential knowledge. That was Sloka 34 of chapter 4. In Sloka 38, we found another beautiful expression for memorization. Nahi gyanena sadrishyam bhavitam ihavidyate. Tatsvayam yoga samsiddha kalenatmani vindati. There is no purifier in this world like knowledge. Those who are perfected in yoga realize that fact in their own heart in due time. Those slokas, which are on page 313 and 318 of our particular Bhagavad Gita, with its commentary by Swami Chidbhavananda, the Ramakrishna Tapavan, are worthy of study, contemplation, and meditation. And that's where we ended last week. We made our way into chapter 5, which I've put on the board, Sanyas Yoga, 29 slokas. Now, sanyas is a Sanskrit term or word that has several meanings. We think of it usually, conventionally so, as those who have taken sanyas, that is, a vow of monasticism, which causes one to live the monastic lifestyle of non-ownership and non-doership. But non-ownership and non-doership are also practices for the householders, that is, for dharmic householders, as we are about to see in chapter 5. Sri Krishna starts off this chapter right away by telling us about sannyas. But in terms of definition of the Bhagavad Gita, we can simply define the word sannyas as renunciation. That would be a, a simple and easy way of putting the matter to rest. When Krishna talks about sannyas, he names this chapter sannyas yoga, he means the yoga or the path of mature renunciation. Now I've often looked back and take you back quite a bit on the names of the chapters. Vishada Yoga, the first chapter, meaning Arjuna's dejection. We see that the mind starts out in a sort of somnolent or depressed state of mind. It's sort of symbolic of uh, our own state of mind as we were growing up, possibly in our adolescence, or even you see adults nowadays who are brooding and unhappy and have never seemed to attain that about that balance or equanimity of mind which Krishna is always talking about in the Gita. So those states come upon mind, whether they're there in the beginning, whether they're sort of attached to the mind as a sort of natural concomitant of its existence, or whether they just come upon the mind during the course of everyday life, which is quite often the case because of visitation of tamasic and rajasic cycles, slothfulness and restlessness come to the mind and balance is sometimes a far cry for human beings. So we named that first, we saw the name of that first chapter was Arjuna Vishada Yoga. Then we saw the second chapter was Yoga of Knowledge. Krishna begins to talk to Arjuna, he begins to come out of his depression because of this input of wisdom that Krishna is giving him, which runs the gamut from non-dualism through qualified non-dualism to dualism. There are teachings in each three of those sections of philosophical evolution which are pertinent to the aspiring soul, to the embodied jiva. 
And so Krishna begins to transmit those to him. And, well, looking back on nahi gyanena sadrishyam pavitramiha vidyate, if knowledge really is a purifier, then it should bring us out of those states. And we see that Arjuna is, himself is coming swiftly out of the state of depression as the second and third chapters are underway. In the third chapter, after giving knowledge, then we find the title uh, as being Karma Yoga. And now that the basic knowledge has been given and the mind is out of that slothful, lassitudinous state, then some teachings on how to act on the field of battle, as it were. Not only that field of battle which Arjuna is looking out upon in trepidation and, uh, and sorrow, but the field of battle which is called karma manasa, the action field of the mind. Everything is the projection of the mind. All action goes on there. Krishna is about to tell us here in chapter 5 that nature is, is the womb of all action, not the soul, not ourself. So out there, everything happens and all cause and effect takes place in that, on that field of karma manasa, projected by the mind. So karma yoga comes next followed swiftly by Jnana Karma Sannyasa Yoga. Chapter 4 was called the Yoga of Renunciation of Action in Knowledge. So he gives teachings about how to act, then he gives teachings on how to neutralize actions in knowledge, or how to attenuate them, or how to purify them, or how to be free of all karmas, because these karmas stick to the mind in terms of samskaric um, residue, that is, you do a, an action over and over and again all your life, it clings to the mind stuff and you, rem you remember it. It crops up all your life, it crops up at the time of death because it's been an initiated habit by you. And it also carries after death into the unresolved mind and is the source which brings the embodied soul back into another rebirth. Krishna is also going to talk much about that in chapter 6, which is a very wonderful chapter. He finally gets to the chapter of meditation, Dhyan Yoga. Uh, but here in chapter 4, he's telling us how to, after getting the mind out of dejection and knowing how to act, how to work, and how to renounce or dissolve all action or do all action in knowledge, uh, then he finally, and that was last week, we finally arrive at sannyasa yoga. How do we come to mature renunciation? Now, you know, we've been doing this Bhagavad Gita study in this particular run-through by selecting certain slokas out of the Bhagavad Gita. I've selected sloka 6, 14, 15, 17, 19, 21, and 22. And though there are many other wonderful slokas, in that chapter, these seem to me to epitomize the crux or the essence of uh, what's being transmitted to Arjuna at this time. So, 29 slokas are possible. Let's look at these seven or eight. In sloka six, Krishna begins talking about sannyas, sannyas yoga per se. But first, chapter five starts out with a question, Arjuna, you can see he's far out of his dejection now, and he's very curious. Here's, his, here's the form of his question. Krishna, you commend action, renunciation of action, and you commend its performance as well. 
of the two, which is better? Tell me conclusively. So Krishna has given him teachings on how to act, and then he's giving him teachings on how to renounce action. So now Arjuna is hearing these two teachings side by side, has gotten confused. Well, which is better? You probably have had that experience yourself where you hear certain things and then you want to know conclusively what's the better route for you. So you ask um, inside and outside both of people around you or people who are supposed to know and you ask your own conscience, your own inner intellect, what's the best of routes? So Arjuna's come to that juncture and he's asking, what's better, renunciation of action or its performance? And Sri Krishna immediately answers, renunciation and performance of action both lead to freedom. But of the two, performance of action is superior to the renunciation of action. Somewhat of a surprising turn here, considering, as I was saying, the contemporary rendering of sannyas is to renounce action. So here he's saying, of the two, it's better to perform action. And there have been some different opinions as to what is meant by this, by, dif by different commentators. Uh, it could be that Arjuna is at that stage of life where he's not ready for sannyas, but he is definitely ready to hear these teachings that will lead him towards purification of karma. So with that as a sort of introduction, let's look here on the board at Sloka 6 and see what true renunciation is according to Krishna. He says, Samyasa tu mahabahu dukkam aptum ayogataha. Yoga yukta munir brahma nachirena digachiti. Renunciation is difficult to attain without karma yoga, O mighty armed one. Mahabaho means mighty armed one. That's one of Arjuna's names. Everyone knows him as by these different names. That's one of them. So Krishna says, sannyas or renunciation is difficult to attain without karma yoga. The meditative one purified by karma, quickly goes to Brahman. So there's also a great danger in taking sannyas or taking to the path of renunciation before one's ready. There are many, many instances, even mentioned by Holy Mother and, and Sri Ramakrishna and Swamiji, of certain so-called ascetics or yogis who renounce the world for the wrong reasons. Holy Mother had a sort of humorous story. She said you might go outside of Banaras, see some of the yogis sitting in the tree, and when you walk up to approach them, they sit up real quick from their sleep and start sewing or, or a button on something or, or pretend like they're meditating. So uh, they're putting on airs, as it were, have renounced the world for the wrong reason. Krishna is recommending performance of action, which leads to purification of karma, which then leaves you in a natural state of renunciation. Sri Ramakrishna had a wonderful story for that. Remember, he said, if you strip the palm tree branch off the palm tree when it's still green, then sap will run and it'll damage the tree. But if you watch the tree over time, the lower palm frond just turns yellow and then droops. And then a couple of days later, you come out, it's browning. And it, finally, a few days later, you'll see it's just laying at the bottom of the tree fallen off naturally. Here in Hawaii, we see that a lot. I used to notice that at, at the last place we lived on Oahu, island of Oahu, there was a palm tree that did that. And every time I walked by that palm tree or drove by it, I thought of that story of Sri Ramakrishna and how true renunciation takes place, or pure renunciation, 
Of course, there are cases, and that's why I said some of the commentators differ on their interpretation of the sloka. There are cases of beings who are born free of most of their karmas, and even some who keep some karma with them in order to be reborn again. We studied that in Yoga Vishishta some months ago, how uh, there are some beings who utilize the ego, the ahamkara, and the karma, so that they can take rebirth again. But whatever the case may be, there are cases of beings who come back perfected of most of their karma. And so in that case, of course, it wouldn't uh, be necessary. So those souls come out uh, free of karma. In Arjuna's case, though, Krishna is advising him to be careful and to attain karma yoga via purification. Because he says, someone that meditative and that specific, that conscious, quickly goes to the state of Brahman. Yoga yukta munir Brahma. Nice phrase in the Bhagavad Gita. So, sannyas is difficult to attain without karma yoga. Means do your work with no desire for the fruits, but meticulously and without um, any sort of attachment to the outcome. About eight slokas later, on the board we have sloka 14. We have a teaching on non-agency. On the board there I've put na kartritvam. Na means no, kartritva or karma means non-agency or non-action. What does he mean by non-agency? Kartri would be the doer. So, na kartri, no doer. I have no sense of doership about uh, attachment to what I'm doing, that is. He says, na kartritvam na karmani. If you have no sense of agency, you'll have no karma. Lokasya srijati prabhu na karma fala samyogam svabhavas tu pravartate. Translation being, the Lord does not create agency or actions for the world. He does not create union with the fruits of action. Nature does all this. Now those are the kind of slokas that when you read them, either right off the top when you first read the Bhagavad Gita, or later on when you've studied it, and you begin to zero in on some of these wonderful slokas, it gives you room for pause, or cause for pause. The Lord does not create agency or actions for the world. He does not create union with the fruits of action. Nature does all this. So that would cause us, if we understood such a sloka, to sort of um, rethink our idea about what God is, define the nature of reality. Because if Krishna, such a soul, cosmic soul, is telling us that the Lord doesn't have any finger in the sense of agency. Further, he says, he doesn't create actions for the world. Nature does all this. So we find that Prakriti and Purusha are being described as being distinct. One of the great movements, philosophical ideas of the Samkhya Yoga period, that, that, the, that the Lord and uh, nature must be distinct. 
That is, what happens in nature doesn't affect the Lord, and also the Lord doesn't predicate what happens in nature. So, if one were to understand that, and then look at one's own actions, then one would become very careful and very observant as to what cause and effect really is. Who's doing the action, and why is it coming back in such a form? And that would lead to, well, something which fundamentalists wouldn't care to admit to, that all responsibility for your well-being rests with you, and vice versa. All responsibility for those negative things that happen to you also rests with you. That Ishvara is unaffected by the various actions which human beings perform. There's poison in the snake, but the snake isn't affected by it. So what he meant to say by that was all good and bad, negativity for instance, exists there, possible in the creation of which Brahman is the substratum, but Brahman is never affected by it. So uh, knowing that is a gives us a great advantage. We begin to believe in this law called karma yoga. We begin to understand its workings, and we also don't attach it up to the Lord. Uh, you won't find a person like that saying anymore, God made me do it, or the devil made me do it or blaming or praising God and devil for various things that happen to them. Instead, they'll be looking to their own self. That's why Holy Mother said, um, you won't find fault with anyone, learn to look into your own faults. Because she knew that if a person started to do that, then they would find the source of all suffering and the source of all pleasure and the source of all benefit there inside of themselves. It's a dead giveaway towards non-dual Advaita. So, many parts to this one-sentence sloka. The Lord does not create agency, doesn't create actions for the world, does not create union with the fruits of action between doer and done, between the accomplisher and the accomplished, and also that nature does all of that. Later on, he'll say, and he'll state the sloka in, in more concrete terms by saying, beings call me creator, but I do nothing, Arjuna. I stand back, and nature does everything. So he again, in later chapters, declares his separation from, his detachment, his witness consciousness, uh, his distinction from that which goes on in nature, actions that rise and fall. Which again leads us on toward that idea of non-origination stated by, by Gaudapada. It gives us uh, impetus to go on and understand that. Now in the very next sloka, which I have also on the board, I could have put them together, but they're, it's nice to treat them separately. He's looking into the nature of Agyana and Moha, which has direct bearing on this thing called Kartritvam, non-agency, non-Kartritvam. He says, Nadate kasyachit papam, papam means, of course, uh, demerit, nachaiva sukritam vibhu, agyani navritam gyanam, tenam 
muyanti jantavaha. The omnipresent one does not take note of the merit or demerit of any being. Knowledge is veiled by ignorance. Mortals are thereby deluded. He's adding an exclamation point to this sloka 14, isn't he? By bringing out the fact in more clear and concise terms that each being has to look to themselves for the cause of their own predicament in Maya. And we find people in uh, a precarious state of mind about this all the time. I have people writing me this, this week, several people who were raised Catholic, and they have a, a very tough time with the idea of sin, damnation. Everything that's that's been told to them has been based upon original sin. And so we find a little bit different slant here, according to Sri Krishna. He says, the omnipresent doesn't take note of the merit or demerit of any. Of course, if nature is doing all the action, is providing all the field for action for beings to uh, act positively or negatively, and if the Lord is detached from that, then of course he wouldn't be cognizant necessarily of good or bad or any of the other dualities. He'd be, he'd be the impartial witness. The Lord is the impartial witness looking on. And in fact, at that level, karma wouldn't exist. The commentators in the Bhagavad Gita, particularly Swami Chidbhavananda, bring that out, that, that Ishvara is completely uh, free of any kind of um, cause and effect. The realm of Ishvara is karmaless. That doesn't touch Ishvara's blissful state. So, a greater step in understanding this kind of knowledge would come about when one knew the omnipresent to be a witness consciousness. So then, how do you take account for the negativities that happen in the world? Knowledge is veiled by ignorance. Mortals are thereby deluded. It's due to rude ignorance, people's own ignorance. Which is why Sri Krishna brought Arjuna's mind out of dejection and weakness, which is why Krishna brought Arjuna into understanding about karma yoga in chapter 3, and also how to renounce all action in knowledge. Those are very well-established steps in a well-presented, well-thought-out master plan of the cosmic soul to raise beings from this, de this delusion or this illusion of finitude, get them out of believing in these encrustations that have come upon us via uh, various negative teachings that have happened from lifetime to lifetime. They've happened to individuals, they've happened to families, they've happened to races and cultures, whole races and cultures, and to the world in general. Remember last week in chapter 4, Krishna said that um, this is a timeless, eternal dharma, but because of the efflux of time, it gets lost and then has to resurface again or be brought back again. He has several places in first four chapters where he talks about Dharma's decline, Adharma's rise, and then his need to incarnate 
in order to bring that about. In the next four chapters, he'll talk more about that. So the Lord acts through Ishvara, apparently so, but always in that knowledge. Not in this sense that knowledge is veiled and then mortals get deluded. He's free of that. And he's about to tell us more about how to act in knowledge and be free of that ignorance. In Sloka 17, on the board there, number 4, he talks about ishtanishta, single-minded focus on reality. <coughs> and that's why we chanted Tanur Grihit Vaupanishadam Hastram today, that you should make the mind sharp by contemplation on reality alone and then penetrate the mark of Brahman. That's basically what he's saying here. Tad buddhayas, taratmanas, tanishtas, tat purayanaha, gachanti apuna ravrittam, gyananir dukkha kalmasaha. Those who think on that, merge in that, get fixed in that, have that as their goal, they attain to non-return, their taints being dispelled by knowledge. So he, of course, uses that in the sense of capital T, means the ultimate. So those slokas we just studied, the omnipresent does not take note of the merit or demerit of any. Knowledge is veiled by ignorance and mortals are thereby deluded. He goes on to say, shining like the sun, knowledge reveals the supreme in those in whom ignorance is destroyed by self-knowledge. Those who think on that, merge in that, get fixed in that, and have that as their goal, they attain to non-return, their taints being dispelled by knowledge. Men of self-knowledge are same-sided on a brahmana imbued with learning and humility, on a cow, an elephant, a dog, or an outcast. So, equalness or uh, evenness of mind is, is enjoined upon us here. In other words, in order to explain this sort of enigmatic fact that Brahman is the witness consciousness, is not involved in all the karma-bearing actions, that go on here in this field of action. That's a little bit difficult for people to comprehend, especially if they have been born uh, and raised with these dualistic ideas, or even fundamentalist or narrow ideas. So he takes a nice tact here, and he describes how a man or a woman of knowledge comes to be same-sided, how they can, through purification of ignorance by knowledge, look upon everything equally, <coughs> on arbiter, on foe, on friend. He goes into great length on this later when he starts in Vibhuti Yoga chapter, he starts stating his various qualities of the Lord and goes into great uh, length on uh, describing the characteristics of a same-sided person. Talks again and again about Stiti Pragnasha, one who is ever imbued with steady wisdom acts and walks and looks and goes and comes. And uh, 
thereby subtly erases the line of demarcation between the human being as human and the human being who has God dwelling in them. Because quite often he says, behold, all beings are in me, but I am not in them. And then in another part of the Gita, he says, all beings are in me, and I am in those who, who love me the most. So he he begins to point out how uh, consciousness is all-pervasive, but one must be conscious of consciousness in order for it to uh, manifest there in the human mind. So for those who are in doubt about the fact that all negative action is coming from their own actions. And, of course, all positive actions would come from their own actions, too. He clarifies that in terms of the impersonal Brahman and in terms of the embodied soul who is illumined, the illumined soul. Those three things get fairly much clarified here in, in Slokas 14 through 17. So think on that, merge in that, get fixed in that, have as your goal that one non-dual Brahman, then you will attain to non-return. Now, non-return is an interesting phrase. Later on, in other chapters, we'll see, for instance, in chapter 6 next week, the Gita's formula for refinement. You strive by right means, you attain righteous company, that leads you to rebirth with pious or prosperous people, or even better yet, rebirth in a family of yogis, people who are sincerely striving for realization. Then in that rebirth you strive for right with right knowledge, whereas previously you were striving with mixed knowledge or with wrong knowledge, if you were striving at all. Because some people don't strive for perfection at all, they just uh, let it all be as it is or make things worse by doing negative or negative actions in, in, in the field of karma. Then by striving with right knowledge, you get purified of all limitations. If you're purified of all limitations, you attain perfection. That is, you realize your inherent perfection. That's the Gita's formula for refinement. If you put that together in chapter 8 with another wonderful teaching that's given called the Sixfold Process of Immersion in Brahman, how is that done, that attainment of perfection at that stage? Sarvadvarani, closing the gates of the body. Samyama manohriddhi, placing the mind in the heart. Murdhni adhyaya pranam, placing the prana in the head. Yoga dharanam, engaging in yoga. Om vyaharam, uttering om. Anushmaram mam, remembering God. So you close all the gates of the body, which is effective prachahara, and then you place the mind in the heart, but you place the prana in the head. So people sometimes say, should I meditate in the heart or the head? Meditate in the heart, they say, because there your atman ex exists there in the heart. But I always want to concentrate on my third eye. Let the prana go to the third eye, the energy is there, but let your attention be in the heart. And that way you'll see heart and head are the same thing. You see, there's a, there's a movement from third eye to heart. That is uh, one place. Then engage in yoga, utter the monosyllable Om, and remember God. You get fixed in Brahman and immerse yourself in Brahman. 
that teaching in accordance with those I just mentioned is very effective. So it all means ishtanishta, doesn't it? Ishtanishta means focus, single-minded focus on your chosen ideal or upon reality. Think on that, merge in that, get fixed in that, have that as your goal. That's the secret of life, successful life, and leads you to realization. Krishna affirms it by saying, those that do attain to non-return, their taints being dispelled by knowledge. So you strive by right knowledge, you get rid of your limitations that are presently in your way, and you go to the Brahman state. He affirms that two slokas later, but puts it in terms of samadarshina and jitta-sarga. Jitta-sarga is an interesting term. It means victory over creation. Or you could say transcendence. There's transcendence in its, in its true rendering. Sometimes people describe transcendence as a sort of escapism where they, they blame it or criticize it or take it to task. But when we talk about transcendence in Vedanta, we mean all-pervasiveness. All-pervasiveness, which is nevertheless non-attached and free from karma, as we were just saying, and uh, free from birth, old age, disease, death, and those different movements, which objects go through, through the process of evolution, objects and worlds, but which the Atman inside is not subject to. So when he talks about Samadarshina and Jitasarga, he means same-sidedness and transcendence. Samadarshina, darshana means to see, so sama means the same, same-sidedness. Jitasarga, victory over the creation. Yahivatayar jitaha sargo yesam samye stitam manaha. Stitam manaha means steady mind. Nir dosham hi samam brahma tasmad brahmani te stitaha. Which means to say, transitory existence is overcome even here by those whose minds rests on equality. Brahman is flawless and the same in all, therefore the wise are ever established in Brahman. How to get the mind to come to rest on equality? Well, he just told us two slokas ago, think on Brahman, merge in Brahman, fix yourself in Brahman, have Brahman as your goal. Reminds us of some of the qualifications of a tantric aspirant. Brahmanishta, Brahmaparayana, Brahmavadi. You must have Brahmavadi. Brahma as your path. Brahmavadi. And then... Uh, Brahmaparayana, Brahma must be your refuge. Brahmanishta, Brahma must be your ideal. So if you have that highest non-dual essence as your goal, then you can merge yourself in it and be free of all karmas and all attendant evils of relativity. Therefore, transitory existence, he even says so, is overcome even here by those whose minds rest in that equality. Transitory existence. What a strange dichotomy. But stiti, 
being established in Brahma, tasmad brahmani te stita, will get you out of that idea of transitory existence, and you'll be able to free yourself. Jita Sarga, victory over the creation, it reminds us of the teachings of Tantra, doesn't it? Remember the seven stages of involution? Started out with what? Bhutajaya. So Bhutajaya means victory over what? Bhuta. Bhuta means beings, things, worlds. Can, it can mean a wide variety of things, but Bhuta basically means created objects. It can mean the five elements, it can mean other people, bodies, uh, forms, it can be objects that you're attached to. So the fir in t as far as Tantra is concerned, the first step to getting free is to get freedom from the objects beings, places, and things, you, you gain freedom from their influence on you. We're always talking about absolute freedom. So they began to come up with these salient systems, which were predicated upon certain practices you did, which could get you free. Krishna is saying pretty much the same thing here when he says, Jita Sarga, get victory over the creation. Overcome transitory existence by keeping your mind in a non-dual state, in equality. Part of that equality would be same-sidedness. That is, as we just said, seeing the same in all beings, having an eye of equality. Part of it would be not taking note of the merit or demerit of any being, just like Brahman itself. Know that ignorance veils knowledge and thereby beings are deluded. Therefore, get rid of ignorance by knowledge, as he's been teaching in the first, in the third and fourth chapters, and get into mature renunciation, sannyas yoga, which is the name of this chapter. Now he says, supreme bliss and transitory happiness are the result. Sukham akshayam and samsparshaja boga that's Chokas 21 and 22 on the board here, under the heading of number 6. Sukha Makshayam, supreme bliss. And transitory happiness, Samsparshaja Boga, a supreme happiness, not a transitory happiness he's talking about. So he says, with the self detached from external contacts, the wise one realizes bliss in the self. Devoted to meditation on Brahman, that one enjoys imperishable bliss. Conversely, the delights that are contact-born are verily the wombs of pain, for they have, Arjuna, a beginning and an end. No wise person rejoices in them. So he's speaking about a whole realm of beings, yogis, yoginis, luminaries, enlightened beings, sages, seers, who have long ago realized or in the process of living have realized or are realizing even now and continue to live in such a state that contact-born uh, delights are the wombs of pain as he puts it here. He says, established in Brahman with a firm understanding and with no delusion the knower of Brahman rejoices not getting what is pleasant and grieves not getting what is unpleasant. 
rejoices not at getting what is pleasant and grieves not getting what is unpleasant. There you have a nice definition for same-sidedness. With the self detached from external context, that one realizes the bliss in the self. Devoted as that one is to the meditation of Brahman, that one enjoys imperishable bliss. Further, he says in Sloka 23, after these two slokas, that one who is able to resist the impulse of desire and anger, even before he quits the body, that one is a yogi, Arjuna, that one is a happy person. So he makes a point for getting on top of desires well before you leave the body, not just sort of becoming complacent and letting time take its course. Remember Kapila, the father of the Samkhya system, told us that those are some of the complacencies. One of those is that time will bring me freedom or time will bring me illumination. I'll wait. It's not time for me yet. So that's not a favorite thought or a favorite route for those who are wise. Sri Ramakrishna, of course, was always saying how he preferred the the way of direct renunciation, quick, swift renunciation, and not the sort of um, lukewarm renunciation. On the route on the route to that mature renunciation of which this chapter speaks, he advises the ability to be able to resist the impulse of desire and of anger. He continues, he says, those whose happiness is within, whose delight is within, whose illumination is within only, they are yogis. They become Brahman and gain the beatitude of Brahman. The sins get destroyed, the doubts get removed, dualities destroyed, minds disciplined, being delighted in the welfare of all beings. These are rishis and they attain the bliss of Brahman. This bliss of Brahman is both here and hereafter for sannyasins who have shed lust and anger, subdued their minds and realized the self. Shedding out external objects and fixing the gaze between the eyebrows, equalizing the outward and inward breaths that are moving in the nostrils, the sage who has controlled senses, mind and intellect, who is solely pursuing liberation, who has cast away desire, fear, and anger, is verily liberated in this very life. That one, Arjuna, comes to know me as the Lord of all sacrifices and offerings, the Lord of all asceticisms, as the ruler of all the worlds, as the friend of all beings, and attains to peace. And that ends chapter 5. So I read you the slokas which succeeded those two slokas, 21 and 22. And which would be good to reread again sometime on your own. But here, basically what he's doing is describing to us the nature of Brahman, then telling us how the illumined being is Brahman-like, same-sided. If you want to see God, then you must see as God sees, as Meister Eckhart says. So, or if you want to put it in the words of Jesus, um, be thee like your, thy Father in heaven, or be thee cut in the image of thy Father. Krishna is advising the same sorts of things here. But the method he's ta talking about is knowledge which overcomes ignorance, 
which leads to the ability to get your mind firmly fixed on the Lord, Ishtanishta, which then allows you same-sidedness and victory over all created things, which ends in supreme bliss or non-attachment to transitory happiness, which is a great impediment for most people. They are attached to their their nominal pleasures. But if they knew the bliss of the self, if they had a taste of that, experienced that, then they would quickly lose their taste for for uh, these minuscule things and start uh, seeking after their inner nature. Sri Ramakrishna said, just like the musk deer who runs around looking for that beautiful scent on the wind, it's actually emanating from its own navel. So the characteristics of a being who's seeking enlightenment, maybe beginning to gain enlightenment, get a taste of enlightenment, you'll see them. They begin to get indrawn, less attached to things outward, of an out, grosser outward nature. They spend more and more time in ishtanishta and getting uh, free of attachment to created things. It's, more, it's uh, as he said here, more of a refinement of ego, mind, and intellect that goes on inside. And that leads them to the possibility, candidacy for the Brahman state, and destroys their karmas, which would otherwise drag them back into the body again. So here at this juncture, we've studied for about an hour, so here we'll take our break and come back and look at some of chapter 6 afterwards. Thank you.